we started online in our first previous service. We started looking at certain passages that Luke wrote. Luke was a Christian. Luke was empowered and influenced by the Holy Spirit to write certain passages from the Gospel of Luke. And we looked at the resurrection on Easter. And then we looked at the, at the ascension of Jesus Christ on uh, the second previous service, which was the last, which was last month. Today we will be talking about the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. It is um, kind of unfortunate that we weren't able to actually meet on the day of Pentecost, the traditional day that people, that churches usually celebrate the day of Pentecost. But still, I think it is an important subject to cover, especially since we are starting a church. The day of Pentecost is the start of the church, and in the day of Pentecost, we're going to learn about the Holy Spirit. If you remember maybe from the Ascension, you could recall that Jesus Christ gave a promise. He said that the Father would send His, his Spirit, and He would empower witnesses. And today we are going to see that Spirit finally come down and empower His people. And His people is the church, and you continue that tradition, and you continue to be that body, and we're so excited to be part of that. But before going any further, let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We are so blessed to be here and read your word. I pray that as we read Acts 2, as we dive into it and learn more about it, we may just be blessed by your words, by your goodness. Lord, may we learn about what the role of the Holy Spirit is within the Christian life. What is that, Lord? Let us learn the importance of how the Spirit came. Let us learn about the message that was preached on the day of Pentecost. Let us learn about the body of believers. Let us learn all about that. And not only just learn, but let us let it change us so much that we start practicing what Christians really need to practice. What is the church? How are we supposed to act in today's age? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So today we are going to be talking about three things, and it is God's spirit. Uh, it is also about God's message, and it is about God's community. You can see that in the next slide right here. God's spirit, God's message, God's community. Um, and these three themes, we find them throughout the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. If you guys want, you guys can take a seat. Uh, and we're going to go through the entire chapter of Acts. I know that sometimes we think, whoa, that's a lot. But I do think that many of us come from certain places, certain churches that maybe focus on one verse and they don't really, and we don't really see the entire narrative. But today I really want us to see what actually took place on the day of Pentecost. Within it we will see the Spirit, we will see how it came, we, see, we will see the signs that were accompanied, we will see the logos, the message. I specifically chose the word logos because logos is the Greek term for message. It is also the Greek term for to speak or word. And John, the apostle, chose the logos to reference Jesus Christ. And we will see here that the message that was preached on the day of Pentecost was concerning Jesus Christ. And we will see how people responded and what that community was. Those who followed and learned and accepted the words of Peter. What was that community like? 
And we start today with Acts 2, verse 1. Acts 2, verse 1. And that was kind of hard to see, but it says, I really encourage you to keep your Bibles open, to keep you, maybe keep it, keep it open in chapter 2. Uh, because I'll be reading, I'm not going to read the entire thing uh, all at once. I'll break it into segments, maybe skip some verses here and there, reference certain verses. But I want us to understand the setting. In Acts 2, verse 1, we find the setting. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. Who, who, is, who are those people that were all together on this day? Well, we know if you, you were following along or you have read the previous uh, chapter, we know that there were the disciples of Jesus Christ that were with them, probably 120. And they, in the previous chapter, we know that they were in the upper room. Maybe they are still in the upper room. Maybe they're in the same house. Regardless, we know that they were together on the day of Pentecost. What is this day of Pentecost? What does this mean? Well, if we see with the word Pente, Pentecost, it, is, it comes from a Greek word that is Pentecoste, and it just means 50. The Jews would count 50 days, and the disciples were Jews, the followers of Jesus, originally they were Jews, and they would count 50 days from the day of Passover until the day of Pentecost. Why would they count 50 days? Because on the 50th day, they would celebrate, it would be a harvest festival, and eventually the Jews associated the giving of the law with the day of Pentecost. The reason they did this is that they would, they would believe that the first Passover, and maybe many of you may know, Exodus and, and Moses, they, they painted the doorpost with, with the blood of the lamb. Of the lamb. Uh, they counted the, the, between the first Passover and the giving of the law. They thought that it was 50 days. And I'm glad I saw Andrea. Uh, there is also a note, fill in the notes if you would like to do it. Uh, it could help you out with this if you want to follow along. It may be helpful, but you don't need to. My mom has some in the back. Uh, she could just uh, pass them out, and if you need paint, pens, she could uh, help out with that. But at any rate, uh, there was a, a, a day where they would connect it with the giving of the law. They connected it with the Moses and the Ten Commandments. So just, just think about the setting, okay? We get this idea that we're all together. It's the day of Pentecost. They are celebrating an agricultural celebration and harvest, and they are celebrating also the giving of the law. And they were all together in one place. Acts 2, 2 through 4. Acts 2, 2 through 4. And it says, suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be the tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I see here that suddenly something happened. They were all together and something happened. What happened? The Spirit had come. Remember the promise that Jesus said that the Spirit would come to empower. We sang earlier, Spirit come rest on us. And the Spirit finally came, and we see that it was accompanied with certain signs. There are three signs that we could focus on, and it's highlighted 
if you look at the following slide, you can see that there is sound, that there is fire, fire that divided upon like tongues on each of them. And we see that there is also speaking in other tongues. Here are these three different phenomena, three different signs. And each of these have a special significance, but I don't want to spend too much time. I'll just briefly mention. In the Old Testament, sound was it was associated, especially when it came from heaven, and especially when it was loud, it was associated with God's presence. Sound was associated with God's presence. And sound, where did it come from? If you remember what we read, sound came from heaven, right? It came from heaven. And who had just ascended to heaven? Jesus, right? He, we, read, we read previously that he had gone to be at the right hand of God, that he went to a place of power, he's a king, he's seated in a place of authority, and the disciples just witnessed him going to heaven, and then suddenly there's a sound that's coming from the same place of heaven, and it's coming down. So, the, so this sign, because sound came from heaven, the Jews, the disciples, they were remembering, this sound is coming from the same place that Jesus just ascended. Therefore, this, whatever is taking place, is coming from Jesus. This is connected to Jesus, to what Jesus had said. Therefore, we can conclude that sound is, if you can go to the next slide, Sound should remind us of God's presence. Sound that comes from heaven should also remind us that it derives, that whatever is taking place derives from Jesus. We also see that there's fire. And here's a, a picture of an abstract picture of what it could have looked like. Obviously, it's not realistic. It is an abstract picture. But it's really hard to really think about this that's taking place. There's fire coming, and it's divided and resting on each of them like cloven tongues of fire. Pretty, pretty hard to predict, but this is just an abstract picture of what it may have looked like. But I believe that the point that Luke is making, he's writing this, and what God is making ultimately, is that God is present. Because if we look at the other passages in the Old Testament. We see that fire has always been a biblical motif for divine presence. Where there was fire, God was believed to be present. We could see this with Moses looking at the burning bush. We know the story. And God and Moses recognized that God was present. Why? Because he saw the fire and the burning bush. So we can conclude that fire is connected to divine presence. We can also look at the giving of the law. And remember, the day of Pentecost, what is it associated to? The harvest and also giving to the law. And if we look at, you could look at other Jewish writers during the time, we won't look at their writings today because of time, uh, but if you look at Philo and other Jewish contemporaries of that time who wrote about the Ten Commandments, you would see that the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law was associated with fire. Go to Exodus 19, 16 through 19. You don't have to go there, but it will be on the screen. 
in Exodus. It says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the spirit and led the people out of the camp and to meet with God. And they stood at the foot, at the foot of the mountain. So you can see here that there is fire. And what else is there? There is sound of trumpets. So this, what's taking place is in the giving of law. Maybe you know the story. Moses going to Mount Sinai. He receives the Ten Commandments. And at this scene, we see sound, or we, we read and we hear sound, and we see fire. So we can, we can read further if we go to the next verse, verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it. The smoke billowed up, then, it, then from it, like smoke from the furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered them. So at this event, we see similar signs. We see fire. We see sound. So when the Jews were there, any person who knew the Old Testament would associate, associate this event the day of Pentecost, with the giving of the law, we can conclude this, that what is taking place here, the pyrotechnics of Pentecost, should remind us of the giving of the law. God is doing something new and bigger. Similar to the law. And when you look at what the Spirit God does within our hearts, we also understand that the Spirit works the law of God within our hearts. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But for right now, another another uh, conclusion that we can make about fire is that fire would fill up the temple of God. It would fill up the tabernacle. It would fill up the temple. But now, it's filling the disciples. Luke is teaching that it's no longer the tabernacle. It's no longer the four walls. But it's God's community. That's God's temple. God's people is God's people. They are the temple of God. They are where God, just as God would fill up the temple with fire, as it appeared here on the day of Pentecost. We see the Spirit of God coming down with fire, but He's no longer filling a four-wall building or a tent or a temple, but rather He is filling God's community. Because God's community is now where God dwells, instead of just the tabernacle. And if we look at the New Testament, you can look at Luke 3.16, and I won't read it because of time, but John the Baptist, he would refer to the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he would say that Jesus Christ would come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the sign of fire um, is related to God doing something big. God doing something, being present, God infilling his temple, and God coming and bringing a new age of cleansing and judgment because John would associate um, the Holy Spirit and the fire with judgment and cleansing. So we have these two signs already, and there's one more sign that I would briefly like to talk about, and that is tongues. We won't, I, I just want to make one observation initially, and we'll talk more about what the importance of tongues is in a little bit, but tongues, here, if you look, 
in the original Greek, the word that was used is the word apothengistai, which means prophesy, okay? And this word that was used when, when some translations say the Spirit of God enabled them. The Spirit of God gave them utterances. The Spirit of God guided them to speak in different languages. And the word that is used there is this specific Greek word, which meant Prophesy. And if we look at 1 Chronicles 25.1, you can see in the, in the Septuagint, the old Greek version of the Old Testament, if you go to 1 Chronicles uh, 25.1, you don't have to go there yourself, it will be on the screen. It says here, David together with the commanders of the army set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Enan, and Judah for the ministry of prophesying, accompanied by parts, lyres, and cymbals. So the same Greek word that is used here is the same word that Luke used um, in this passage. So if we look at tongues here, at least one of the things that we could take that this sign of tongues, what does it mean? Whatever it means, it's somewhat connected to prophesying. It's somewhat connected to speaking the wonders and signs of God. And they were filled with the Spirit. So these three signs, this phenomenon, they were filled with the Spirit. What, what does that mean, filled with the Spirit? What is the significance of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, you can see that it is connected to John the Baptist, what he said, that there would be a new era, that, that there would be cleansing, that there would be judgment. He talks about fire. That's one of the things, that there's there's new era, there's cleansing, our heart will be changed. That's one of the things that comes with being filled with the Holy Spirit. What is another thing? What else can we learn? Well, if we look at the prophet Ezekiel, he's from the Old Testament, he spoke on behalf of God. He said about the Holy Spirit, he said wonderful words. He said this, Ezekiel said, um, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will give you a new heart. This is, the previous one was from chapter 11, verse 19. This one is from chapter 36, verses 26 to 27. And I said, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Here are three observations that we can make from this from what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. One, a new era has begun. Something has changed. There is cleansing. There is judgment. A new era has begun. The last phase. Now, our hearts have changed according to Ezekiel. Our hearts are new. We don't have a heart that is cold like stone, but it's a heart that feels. A heart of flesh. And no longer is the law, remember, day of Pentecost, fire, sound, everything associated with the law, and now here, with the being filled with the Spirit, the significance, no longer is the law written on tablets stones. But they are written in our hearts. God's Spirit comes and changes our hearts. And now we could be moved to follow God's loving decrees. 
Acts 2, 5-11. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Verse 7, utterly amazed they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is that each of us hears them in our native language? Verse 9. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Here is a, a map that we could actually look at to get an idea of what's taking place. Uh, it's pretty, pretty significant what's taking place. Um, all these people from Rome, you could see Rome, you could see Cyrene, Libya, Mesopotamia, they were all gathered here in Jerusalem. They were all here in this place. And what is significant about this is that they came from different areas. It is likely that they probably all spoke Greek, maybe they spoke Aramaic, but what's wonderful is that these people from all of these different places started to hear signs and wonders of God in their own language from these, own, from these people. They started to hear from them the, the message of God in their own language. We finally see the Spirit coming just as Jesus promised. The Spirit came, remember? And what was it supposed to do? What was he supposed to do? He was supposed to empower, give power. And we see the Spirit coming. And it came and it empowered the disciples to do what? To preach the gospel in the language of the people. God's Spirit empowers witnesses to witness. Give testimony and proclaim God's oneness. The Spirit came to proclaim, to empower the witnesses to be witnesses, to go and preach. And what's wonderful is that God, yes, they could have probably spoken in Greek or in Aramaic, but God wants people to hear the message of God, His message, in their own language. He didn't want it to be so sophisticated, so far off. He wanted people to understand their language. And we all this talk about language. If you are an avid reader of the Old Testament, of the Old Hebrew Scriptures, you might, all this talk about language might remind you of the Tower of Babel. At the day of the Tower of Babel, people were trying to build this tower in their own name, trying to rebel against God. But what did God do? God confused their languages. But here we see that Pentecost is the answer to Babel. Because God, instead of bringing different languages to bring confusion, He changed language so He could bring unity. Instead of bringing confusion through a variety of languages, God Brought communication, clear communication through the different languages. Acts 2, 14 to 21. So we talked about the Spirit. Now we're slowly transitioning 
to the largest. And not every section is as big, the largest and the message and God's community is shorter through the Spirit. But Acts 2, 14 to 21, we read this, and I skipped a verse or two, but those two verses, one verse, some people thought that these people, because they were speaking different languages, they thought that they were drunk. And they made fun of them, these people are drunk. So Peter is giving a response to these individuals, to these mockers. And he says, he stands up, Peter is one of the apostles, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the followers of Jesus, and he gets up, and he raises his voice and addresses the crowd, and he says, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It's too early to be drunk. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Joel was a prophet who existed a couple centuries before Jesus Christ. And he said this. He's, so Peter is talking to the mockers. He's giving a response to all the people who were there. And he, sa he says what Joel said. In verse 18, 17, he's quoting Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming to the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32 to teach that this event is what Joel depicted. This is God pouring out His Spirit in the last days. Have people received the Spirit before? Did they receive it? Well, yes and no. But this, this is different. This is only before only prophets and specific people would get the Spirit for a period of time. But now the Spirit is coming in a new way. And it is coming like, it, it coming bringing a new era where the Spirit of God writes His law and the hearts of His people. And it's not only for a specific type of people, it's everyone. Joel 2 teaches that all flesh, that male and female, that, that, that on all levels of society, it doesn't matter if you are affluent, if you didn't go to school, if you are wealthy, maybe if, if you were a slave, it wouldn't matter. You can receive God's Spirit. God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter where you came from, where you were born, what society, what nation you came from. It does not matter. God is no respecter of persons when it comes to whom he gives his spirit. The old, young men and women are not excluded. No one is excluded. We can all have the spirit. Acts 2.22, we find the life of Jesus. So, Peter found it fitting, found it appropriate while he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He found it fitting to talk about 
Jesus in order to explain about the Spirit. He thought that it would be best to explain about Jesus. To further explain the Spirit, he began to preach about Jesus. This is the Logos. This is the message of every Christian. And it begins with the life of Jesus. Acts 2, 28, 22. This is Peter preaching. And he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Who is Jesus Christ? He was approved by God. Maybe you may remember when Jesus was baptized, God said, this is my son, I am well pleased with him. And he approved him, and he did signs and wonders through him. God's anointed. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. Acts 2 23. Now Peter transitions to the death of Jesus. I do want to add that Peter probably preached more than what we read here, but this is just a summarized thing. Acts 2 23, death of Jesus. He goes on to transition. This Messiah, this man, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. By nailing him to the cross. To the cross. Here we find a paradox. Yes, it was God's plan to see Jesus die on behalf of all humanity. But at the same time, it was evil men, wicked men who acted. And they were guilty of killing this this man who God had anointed, who was the Word made flesh. He killed him. Yes, God had planned. Again, he, he wanted to save all humanity, and he would do this through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, it was evil men. Evil men were the ones who killed, who murdered Jesus. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end. Acts 2, 24 through 32. The resurrection of Jesus. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said to him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is right at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So this term for agony of death it is similar to words that the Greeks would use to describe labor pains. Therefore, we can conclude, we can conclude that there's type of rebirth imagery with the resurrection of Jesus. And remember, Peter is preaching all of this. And he quotes while he's preaching, while Peter is preaching, he quotes the psalmist, David. And he says, look, I, I saw the Lord over before me, and, he, and he's always going to be in the presence of the Lord. And if we continue, verse 26, Therefore my heart is glad, and my heart, my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy, with joy in your presence. Let's go to the next verse. So now we see Peter give his interpretation. Look, look what he says. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David, King David, who many of us already know, 
was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. So Peter, remember what the psalm said. Peter saying, the psalm says that I would not be left in the realm of the dead. And this is David writing. David wrote, you will not leave me in the realm of the dead. But was David talking about himself? Peter says that he wasn't. Because during Peter's time, we know where David is buried. That's what Peter said. We know where his tomb is at. David is within the tomb. So this is not talking about David. David was not talking about himself. But David was a prophet talking about something in the future. And he was talking about his own descendant. A descendant of David. And who is that descendant? Is no one else except for Jesus Christ. This is the one whom God would not leave in the realm of the dead. This is the one whom David preached about. It is only Jesus. And then, so we, we talked about the life of Jesus. We talked about the death of Jesus. And now we talked about the resurrection of Jesus. Now let's talk about the ascension of Jesus. Acts 2, 33 to 36, it says, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he who was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay, God has raised this Jesus' life, and we are all witnesses of it. And this is talking about the resurrection. Let us go to the next slide, verse 33, and this is talking about the ascension. Exalted to the right hand of God, remember, this is a kingly act. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out with you what you poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Verse 35 Until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be saved, be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified for both the Lord and Messiah. So let's just recap the points that Peter made. The life of Jesus, God approved him, God did signs and wonders through him. Then we go to the, the death of Jesus. God had planned this, but it was also because of the hands of the wicked men who were present there. And then we see the resurrection. God would not leave Jesus in the realm of the dead. Rather, he would raise him. And then we see the ascension, what we just read. And we covered it in detail in the previous, previous service that we had. Jesus had ascended to heaven to be at the right hand of God, where he received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now he poured it out to what people are now It's all connected to Jesus. When Peter preached the message about the Holy Spirit, he preached about Jesus. Jesus, he graciously, graciously is willing to give the Spirit to the same people 
Acts 2, 37, the response. How do we respond to all this, or how should we Acts 2.37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we The Greek word here for pricked in the heart is katanugesen, and what it represents is, that it could represent that they were pierced, broken in heart, punctured the spirit. They just felt something in their heart. They heard the story about Jesus, maybe they felt like, man, this Jesus is perfect, and maybe they felt that this was an injustice. Maybe they, they probably felt guilty of what they did. They were the wicked men who killed them. And maybe even now, while we're reading all about this, we feel pricked in the heart. We feel to the grief. And this is this is crazy. And then Peter gets up and he tells them, and he answers them because they're asking, okay, what shall we do? Peter gets up and tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And there are other slides that get really into detail within this passage, um, but several things. Uh, repentance. Repentance is always connected with faith. Believe in Jesus Christ, you will repent. They go to two sides of the same coin, as it's often said. And we also see that they were baptized. And just baptism in Jesus' name meant that you were confessing that Jesus is the one who you follow. And we currently don't have any baptisms, but if you desire to get baptized, feel free to talk to us. Uh, eventually, we will coordinate with this church that whenever they have baptisms, we will also have baptisms if anybody, they'll bring out the team if they have a, a place where they could be baptismal that we could use. Um, but when you are baptized, the significance of that is that you are proclaiming, you are confessing with your mouth or with your that action that I'm making allegiance to Jesus Christ. And what's so significant about this setting is that Jesus Christ was a criminal, was murdered at the hands of these wicked men. And yet, they're going to get baptized, making allegiance to the one whom they murdered. And yet, Jesus is so gracious, so gracious that he is willing to give out his spirit, which makes one whole, which makes one clean. He shows grace to the ones who If you're wondering, maybe you're thinking, God, he can't accept me. He accepted the one who murdered him. He can accept me as well. Now we're transitioning to the communion, and this is probably five minutes tops. Acts 2, 43 to 47. Uh, this is the end of the chapter. We did it! <laughs> Acts 2, 43 to 47. It says, with many other words, he warned him then, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 45. They sold property and possession to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, the last verse. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number. Day, those who were being William W. Klein, he's a, he's a scholar of the New Testament, he said this, uh, on the day of Pentecost, a new community was formed. A new community. And then it was formed, it was constituted now by the presence of the Spirit, not on the basis of Jewish ethnicity, or becoming a proselyte to Judaism. This was a radical redefinition of the people of God. No longer did we have to pick up the rights of Judaism to be part of God's people. Now, all you need is to have the Spirit. The church is a Spirit-filled church. Without the Spirit, there is no church. The church is also a studious church. They study the Scripture. They study what the apostles taught. And the church was also a loving church. And all of this, all of these points, I hope the church could embody, especially in Calvary Church. When we talk about a loving church, William Barclay, he is also a scholar of the New Testament. He says, and he writes, the early church had what someone has called the great quality of togetherness. These early Christians had an intense feeling of responsibility for each other. Real Christians cannot bear to have too much when others have too little. They sold what they had because they loved one another. They broke bread with each other because they loved one another. And I pray that we can be a church that loves one another. The church was also a worshiping church. They would go to the temple, they would pray, and we worship here as well. And finally, the church is an evangelistic church. And uh, next time, we will have cards available uh, so we can pass out and evangelists. We wanted this, so it's kind of in-house so we can get our food, but uh, I have two points and real quickly. The first one is uh, meditations of the life of Christ. So we, we learned a lot, maybe we went through this entire chapter there's a lot that we could take in, a lot. Uh, but there is a, nar a narrative that God is speaking here. And sometimes we only focus on two verses, on three verses, and we eclipse everything. But when we read this entire chapter, we can learn about God's spirit, God's message, and God's community. And I think those three things, the spirit, the message, the logos, church are central, are pillars to encounter church. But meditations on the life of Christ. Because of Jesus, God is dealing with his people in a new way. We have the power to follow Jesus and to build a godly way of life in every culture. 
Jesus has sent out, has sent us out and poured out the Holy Spirit to make disciples of all nations, because he intends to glorify himself, manifesting the holy love and the loving holiness of God in every nation, to reclaim that cultural and national diversity for his own glory and for the love of his creation. Jesus has changed everything. Here is a hymn to follow, and we will end with this. And I, I, if you want, just close your eyes. Uh, the, the worship team had it up, so we won't really have the time to worship towards the end. Uh, but we will pray, uh, and we, we will be dismissed. But just close your eyes right now. So again, these words, and it goes along. It's a, it's an old hymn, probably from the 300s, 400s. And just, just meditate on these words. Okay. When the blessed apostles were gathered together, the place shut, and the scent of paradise, having recognized its home. Poured forth its perfume, delighting the heralds by whom the guests are instructed and come to his banquet. Eagerly he awaits their arrival, for he is the lover of mankind. If you have the Holy Spirit to you, have on this perfume, this, this fragrance that reminds this world through the community, through individual people, you have the spirit. Uh, and this spirit, this aroma, reminds people of their lover, who is Jesus Christ, who has developed, who has prepared a banquet. And he desires to welcome
you have given us an aroma of you. This Holy Spirit, I pray that throughout this week we can find ways that we can show others about you. Give them the scent that they can smell, that they can see through our actions, our deeds, our attitude, that they could, that they would be reminded. Reminded know that you love them. Even if they were part of the scheme to murder you, to commit great injustice,